Welcome back, listeners. Jesse Swain here with you for another episode of Calderwood Considers, a Dartmouth Health podcast for discussing fundamental health care quality and safety topics with Dr. Michael Calderwood, Chief Quality Officer at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. It's hard to believe that it's been three months since our last podcast, but we were taking a bit of a hiatus for the summer while the kids were out of school, team members were traveling on vacation, and clinical responsibilities competed for our time. Dr. Calderwood, I know you're excited to be back today talking about change management, as am I, because this is a topic central to what our quality and safety teams do on a daily basis as part of our high reliability journey. You and I have also chatted about this topic on more than one occasion. Michael, you have been known to quote Mark Twain, who I believe said, continuous improvement is better than delayed perfection. As we launch into today's discussion, tell me a little bit about why you like this quote. Thanks, Jesse. I'm really excited to be back, and we have a lot to cover today. Regarding the quote that you mentioned, many of us focused on change management like to say, perfect is the enemy of good. And what we mean by this is that perfect is an asymptote and never fully achieved. Instead, we often aim for better as an iterative process, understanding that we're constantly learning and sharing knowledge about how to deliver better outcomes. For you and I, we're focused on improving healthcare, but this quest for better plays out in all fields and all aspects of life. Absolutely. And sharing is caring. That's what I always say. As you know, I'm a huge proponent of networking as part of that sharing because I always learn something from these interactions. So let's explore this topic of change management in a bit more depth. I wanted to start with John Cotter's seminal paper from 1995, Leading Change. In this paper, he lays out eight steps to leading change, including creating urgency. Michael, why is it so important to create a sense of urgency? So first off, I often reframe this as creating a sense of priority rather than urgency. In his book, Smarter, Faster, Better, Charles Duhigg talks about the need to break away from cognitive tunneling. And it's easy for us to focus on the first thing that comes to our attention, even if it's not the most important thing. We need to stop focusing on what's wrong and start focusing on what's still working the bright spots that can motivate change. So when thinking about prioritizing what's important, I love the witticism, it's easy to fall into the trap of being too busy chasing cows to build a fence. So in the leading change article, Carter writes about the need to help others see the need for change, communicate the importance of acting immediately, and honestly convince those being asked to change that business as usual is unacceptable. In doing this, it is critical to avoid falling into the trap of scope naivete. So it's important not to underestimate the work and you need to assess the organization's capacity. It may be necessary to pause other efforts. And this is what I mean by focusing on priority rather than urgency. It was a nice article back in 2022 in the Harvard Business Review that was entitled, Change is Hard, Here's How to Make It Less Painful. And Erica Anderson wrote, when a change is first proposed, most people immediately want to know three things. What does this change mean to me? Why is it happening? 
and what will it look like when the change has been made? Now, others have focused on different questions that often come to mind, such as who does this change affect? How will the effect be felt? And what will this change ultimately deliver and when? So for teams to be bought in and motivated to change, it's critical to address these questions as part of building a powerful guiding coalition. Yeah, those all sound like questions that I might ask myself when somebody asks for a change. So Cotter also talks about this powerful guiding coalition, and he writes, large-scale change can only occur when massive numbers of people rally around a common opportunity. Efforts that don't have a powerful enough guiding coalition can make apparent progress for a while, but sooner or later, the opposition gathers itself together and stops the change. And I think that many of us have experienced resistance when seeking to lead change. Michael, what have you learned about the best way to approach resistance and gather support for change? So personally, I think the step number two in Cotter's eight-step path to leading change may be the most important. So we need to hear and share the narratives about what our care teams and our patients are experiencing, and then craft solutions aimed at improving these narratives. So Don Berwick, the former head of Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services and the president emeritus of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, wrote a really nice article, What Leaders Don't Know Can Hurt Them. And in this article, he is quoted as saying, effective leadership is not transactional, it is relational. What people value most in their leaders are compassion, listening, humility, and seeking to understand. Now, Erica Anderson, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast, also highlights a really important point that we often forget. By the time that we're communicating a change, we've generally had some time to go through our own change arc. Yet we often expect others to be accepting of the change from the first moment that they hear it, where we've had months of thought and questioning and mindset shift, and they haven't had that same time. Yeah, that's a really good point. I actually literally just experienced this concept of the change arc, but hadn't actually recognized it until just now. And I think it's always helpful for me to discover these real life examples to draw from in the future. You also mentioned the concept of a mindset shift. In this shift, the change becomes seen as doable, rewarding, and even normal rather than weird. Exactly, and that really what takes time. Heather Stagel is a self-described change facilitator, and she gave a really nice TED Talk that folks can go and check out called How to Deal with Resistance to Change. So in this talk, she highlights three important mistakes that we often make, and I often have to return to this to remind myself <laughs> of these mistakes. So first, when you encounter resistance, it's important that you don't take it personally. When you take it personally, that causes you to become defensive and the change becomes a battle to win and not something to collaborate on together. Yeah. Second, you want to not blame others for not changing. When we do this, we fall victim to what is referred to as the fundamental attribution error. That's the tendency to attribute the behavior of others to their character or their personality while attributing our own behavior to our circumstances. So think about when we encounter resistance, we often tell ourselves that the person resisting the change is being stubborn. 
But when it's ourselves that are resisting the change, we tell ourselves that we have a valid reason. Right. So that brings us to the third mistake we often make. When we encounter resistance, it's important that we seek to see the change through the eyes of the individual who's resistant to the change. When we focus on overcoming the resistance without uncovering the reason, this causes people to dig in their heels even more or to implement the change begrudgingly, which can have adverse downstream effects. So Heather Stagel in her TED Talk said this, when we can understand the experience of the change from someone else's point of view, then we have something that we can deal with. Resistance is something to uncover rather than something to overcome. Yeah, this actually makes me think a lot about working on process improvement teams and, you know, having all of the appropriate stakeholders at the table. So you're understanding what the change means to them. And what I find fascinating about these points is that they seem like common sense. But as you mentioned, it's something that we really actually have to think about and go back to. In the moment, it's easy to become an offender and think that it's the other person is just being difficult. And we all do that. And that's why it's important to remind ourselves. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Michael, I've heard you also speak about the need to direct, motivate, and shape the path when seeking to lead change. Can you talk a little bit more about this? So thanks for bringing this up. It's a concept that was really brought up by Chip and Dan Heath, who wrote a book called Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard. And they refer to the idea of the rider and the elephant. And so the rider is our rational side, provides planning and direction. And the elephant is our emotional or instinctive side. It provides energy and drive. So what these authors write is that the writer's greatest weakness, whether it's a person or a team, is the tendency to overanalyze or overthink, this idea of spinning your wheels. So if you reach the riders of your team but not the elephants, you get understanding without motivation. Now, the flip side, if you reach the elephants but not the riders, you have passion without direction. And both of these can be paralyzing. So you need to do three things. The first is that you need to direct the riders. You need to understand what looks like resistance is often a lack of clarity. So this could be a lack of clarity about each person's role in the change, why this is a priority, or how the change will lead to a different outcome. The second is that you need to motivate the elephant. And I often get asked the question, well, you know, is the rider one group of people and the elephant's another group of people? And we all have a little bit of a rider and a little bit of elephant, and that could change depending on the project. Yeah. But what often looks like laziness is often exhaustion. And this gets back to the idea about avoiding scope naivete and ensuring that there's proper support for the change to be successful. Yeah. And I think often people when they hear a change is coming is, what will this add to my workload? Yep. They're not necessarily expecting a change to benefit or create a more efficient process. Right. And that really gets at the last point is the need to shape the path. And kind of what we often think of as a people problem is often a, a situation problem. We need to be open to what others might perceive of as difficult or costly or weird And moving people along the change arc, as we discussed earlier, requires addressing these perceptions and ensuring that the path forward is doable, rewarding, and 
honestly sustainable as the new normal so that it can really solidify and become the way we do things. Right. And I think sometimes we even see that maybe what we originally thought would be the best way forward, we're making those small iterative changes as we move along to find the best pathway forward so that it is sustainable. And again, these steps, they seem like common sense, but let's draw a little bit more from these concepts. John Cotter outlines the importance of both creating and communicating a vision as essential to leading change. This vision often serves as a link from the present where the work is necessary to implement the changes to the future where the improvements have led to better outcomes. The goal is to translate this vision into reality. So why is a clear vision so important to ensuring that transformation efforts don't fail? So we often talk about this idea of a vision, and the goal really is to develop a picture of the future that's relatively easy to communicate and appeals to a diverse audience that may be other leaders, staff, patients, family, or even the broader community. Now, some refer to this as an elevator pitch, but the idea is something that's emotionally compelling, easy to understand, and can be broken down into smaller steps so that people can actually see the path through the woods to the pinnacle on the other side. A lot of people can see where we're going, but it's showing how we get there. Mm -hmm. So there's a leadership principle about getting everyone in your boat rowing in the same direction. And we often talk about alignment and coordination, but that, that can lead to a team rowing together. But a shared vision is required to ensure the boat is rowing toward the intended target with the intended outcome. Mm -hmm. So if we take this boat analogy a little bit further, it's really important that there's agreement on the direction that the boat should be heading. Now, this doesn't mean that there are course corrections along the way, but it's critical that a shared vision be understood and communicated by more than just a single leader. In addition, the vision can't be shared in a single communication or a single meeting. Change management takes time and repeated messaging through multiple channels. It's also important, and probably the most important, that those leading the change walk the walk. If leaders behave in ways that are antithetical to the vision, then the transformation effort will fail. Wow, that's a really important point. And I think many of us have experienced situations when things break down because of a lack of clarity around the vision, how the vision is communicated, how the vision may not be shared by those people that are tasked with leading the change, in order to be successful, there has to be a shared belief in whatever that change is. And another key role of leaders is removing obstacles when seeking to implement change. Michael, what are some good ways for leaders to help their teams overcome obstacles that they might be facing? So Jesse, this is where it's truly critical to create a workplace where employees are encouraged to innovate and exercise their creative process. Daryl Rigby wrote an article, Three Questions to Help Your Team Solve Problems. And in this article, he proposed three simple questions, and I like these questions. Number one, what do you recommend? This is something we should be asking our teams. How can we test that? And what do you need from me? And the goal is really to have a theory to explain how a change will lead to a different outcome, to define the first change that's expected if there's uptake of this change, to then look for objective signs of implementation, outlining realistic lag times. We sometimes expect the change to be immediate, right. and we need to understand it takes time. And 
if not successful, and not all change will be successful, to ask why. There will be failure, but the goal is to make these failures informative. So Cotter also talks about the need to plan for, create, and celebrate short-term wins, and I think this is really a critical point. Without short-term wins, too many people give up or actively join the ranks of people who've been resisting the change. And so I often remind people of the saying, change is hard at first, messy in the middle, and gorgeous at the end. But you want to make sure that you have these celebratory moments along the way so people can see that we are making change, even in small steps towards that better tomorrow. Yeah, I loved that quote, actually. And it made me think of actually trying to clean my daughter's room because it's overwhelming at first. And then she says, it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. And then at the end, it's great. So it's another great life reflection there. I think it's important also that we don't declare victory too soon. So Cotter ends his seminal article on leading change with two important points. First, until changes sink deeply into a workplace culture, new approaches are fragile and subject to regression, which I think, again, we've all observed in process improvement work where we have maybe not monitored that end change for a long enough period of time, and it doesn't fully sink into the culture. So we kind of have to go back and reinstitute that again. And then second, change sticks when it becomes the way we do things around here. And I think we've all heard that phrase used by other staff members where we're asking questions and it's, this is the way we do things. So that's where we want to end. But none of this happens overnight. It really doesn't. No. So Dr. Calderwood, this has been another really fantastic conversation, so much fun. And I hope that the listeners learned as much as I did. Do you have any final points that you want to make today before we sign off? So Jesse, first off, this podcast has been a wonderful opportunity to converse on topics that I'm passionate about. And we appreciate the feedback that we've been getting from everyone who's been listening. We look forward to our next episode. And honestly welcome ideas for topics that the listeners would find valuable. Absolutely. So as we bring today's podcast to a close, I want to share a quote that was taken from an article written by Luis Velasquez and Kristen Gleitzman on becoming a collaborative leader. I think the first point is that it's really a group effort. The quote is, affecting lasting change is not a solitary quest, but an inherently shared effort. Embrace a collaborative mindset that respects and includes diverse perspectives, maintains strategic focus, and patiently navigates complexities of organizational dynamics. So I've quoted Simon Sinek in earlier podcasts. He's written a number of influential books that I like to recommend others. Start with Why, Leaders Eat Last, The Infinite Game. But, you know, he said that the role of a leader is to create an environment in which great ideas can happen. If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. He talks about this idea of an infinite-minded leader, but it's someone who understands that best is not a permanent state. Instead, they strive for better, and that better suggests a journey of constant improvement that makes us feel like we're being invited to contribute our talents and energies to make progress in that journey. And we really want to be inviting everyone on our team to be part of that journey, to add to that journey and focus on better. So as we come to a conclusion today, I will remind those listening, if you think you're leading 
and no one is following you, then you're only taking a walk. Thank you for listening, and best of luck in your efforts to lead change and create a better tomorrow. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Calderwood, again. What a fantastic way to end. You have been listening to Calderwood Considers. This is Jesse Swain signing off for Dartmouth Health. 